Hello and welcome. You're listening to Law and Legend with your host, Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. Today, we're joined by our guest storyteller, Tim Ralphs. Tim is an acclaimed performer and professional storyteller. He began his career with a breakout performance at the 2007 Young Storyteller of the Year competition. He received a British Award for Storytelling Excellence in 2012. He's performed in festivals and events in places like Belgium and Delhi and has been well received at the Edinburgh Fringe and the London Soho and Barbican Theatres. As the founder and host of the Story Forge, the flagship storytelling club here in Sheffield, for many years, Tim was one of the storytellers responsible for introducing me to the world of traditional myth, legend and folklore, and to storytelling as an art in its own right. He has since moved on to Nottinghamshire, where he's launched a new regular storytelling event, Beast and Tales. Later, we'll hear from Tim about his own journey with storytelling, his experiences as a professional storyteller. But first, we're going to hear a story from Tim. This is the soul of Jonah Jones. So it starts in Wales on a tramping road. And one end of the road down there, that leads to House Fernal, which... It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Combinations of, of furnaces and infernal, house fernal and its dark and sulfurous spewing chimneys. And up there, the other end of the road, that leads to the blue-roofed mansions of High Eden with that famous bright pearly gate and the choirs singing inside. And somewhere along that road is a little turfed-roofed cottage with a black tarred door. And it's in there that Jonah lived with his wife, Ellen. Now, before we go any further in the story, it's worth noting that Jonah was not a particularly pious, or indeed you might say, good human being. Certainly his neighbours would often peer out from behind their curtains and think that his soul must be blacker than the tar on his door. But Ellen, everyone loved Ellen. She was adored and she was kind and courteous and considered and she would always be in chapel of a, of a Sunday. Jonah didn't bother with that. He found it very boring. He much preferred, especially after he'd retired, the tail end of his life, his favourite thing to do would be to sit in his chair and to lift his legs up off the floor. That wasn't a particularly hard thing for him to do because he was such a short man that he could milk the cows standing up. Um, but he'd lift his feet up off the floor and he'd call over his little terrier and he'd say, boy, boy, rats. And at the word rats, the terrier would be so overexcited that it would run around biting at the hems of the curtain and chewing on the furniture. And Jonah would just laugh to himself. And who knows how many years this would have carried on, except that one night Jonah had a dream. And in his dream, he found himself in a strange purple vaulted hall. And there was a smell of burning that filled his nostrils. And he heard his, his little voice crying out, saying, Where am I? And a great thunderous red voice answering, You're home, Jonah. Welcome home. And he said, But, but what do you mean? What home is this? Where am I? Where else would you be? But home to blazes. And there was a great 
cackling laugh and he could hear the kind of whimpering of people in fear and pain. And he woke up the next morning, soaked through with sweat, completely white, shivering. And he grabbed Ellen and he said, Ellen, I've had a vision of what's waiting for me. And I know now that my time left on this earth is going to be short. And what I fear more than anything is that when I die, my place will be down there, down in House Fernal, with Mr. Blazes as my master. Ellen, you've got to promise me that, that you'll do something to, to get my soul safely up to High Eden. Oh, but that's going to be a hard task, and I, and I regret laying it on you. They will be slow to let an old otter like me into the salmon pools of that place. And she kind of patted her husband's arm, because there was a lot of love between the two of them. They shared a lot of things, for all that their characters were different. She patted his arm and she said, Husband, you might not be a white lamb, but you'll be nobody's black sheep if I can do anything about it. And she soothed him back to sleep. And time passed and Jonah found himself getting steadily weaker. And within a week, he was lying on his bed. She was there. And he, as the saying goes, gave up the ghost. And she was ready to catch it in a little leather bag that she'd had prepared. Pressed it to his lips, caught his soul as it exited, closed his eyes, closed his mouth, folded his hands on his chest. And then holding tight to the mouth of that leather bag, swung it over her shoulders. For such a small man... His soul was a very weighty burden to be carrying. But she opened the black tarred door to the cottage, stepped onto the road, and just for a moment she looked down, down the way to where all of those chimneys were smoking and spewing, and she felt the soul in the bag twitch and wriggle and writhe, and she said, all right, it's okay, and she turned and she began to walk up the hill. And it was a long walk. Not unlike the walk that I've taken to get to the studio here today, though it was snowing on me and it wasn't snowing on Ellen. And as she was walking, she came to a place where there was a bit of a valley and where the bridge seemed to have been washed away, maybe in a, a storm recently. And there, sitting beside the washed away bridge, there was a gentleman in a long, dark tailcoat with a smile on his face. And Ellen... She didn't have to guess twice. She knew that this was old Nick, old scratch, Mr. Blazes himself. And he sauntered over to her and said, Ellen, it would seem that you're not going to be able to go any further on this road. Come on, sweet and righteous lady, give the devil his due. And he held out his hand for the bag. But she gave him a, a cold glare and she said, I've often heard people round, round where we live say that I was Jonah's better half. Would you agree with that? And the devil kind of scratched his head and said, um, um, yes, I suppose I'd, I'd have to agree with that. Well, I don't see why you should go to so much trouble over the, the worse half when the better half could be yours. I'm listening. Do go on. And I just wonder, if you were to build a bridge here for me, what you might charge for that endeavour? Well, I'm not in the business of playing for glass marbles, Ellen, but we'll say this. If I raise a bridge here, and you will say that the first thing living that crosses over it belongs to me, then we might have a bargain. So they agreed. And she shook hands with the devil there, and then, and just like that, 
he had brought the stones up and constructed the bridge once more fresh and he rubbed his palms together. But Ellen, she just gave a long, shrill whistle, which I'm not going to do for the sake of the listeners. And then from their little cottage came trotting up the terrier. And it came all the way up and she gestured and it went over the bridge, wagging its tail and smiling. And Mr. Blazes, he frowned and he stamped and he said, cleverly done, Ellen. I don't think I'm going to let this poor innocent dog go away with you. You've given it to me. And I'm not one, he said as he bent down to to gather up the dog, I'm not one to rat on a bargain. But of course, as soon as he said the word rat, the terrier's ears went down, its fur stood up wiry, and it started biting at the nearest thing to it, which was the gloved hand of Mr. Blazes, and soon there were little rivers of fire running down his arm, and he was trying to shake the terrier off his wrist, and he cried out, Oh, heaven, take this dog! And it went flying, and he disappeared. And the terrier gave the leather sack a little sniff, and it seemed to kind of nod to Ellen, and then it went wagging its haunches all the way back down the hill to their cottage. And Ellen went on, over the bridge, up the road, and it wasn't long before she came to the high wall and the beautiful blue-roofed mansions of High Eden. And whatever you may hear or see in depictions of the pearly gate, Ellen had two thoughts when she saw it. One, it was more tasteful than she was expecting. And two, it was surprisingly narrow. And there outside, waiting, there was a man, and she could tell by the jangle of his keys that this was St. Peter. And she went up to him and she said, um, <clears throat> uh, Peter, it's great, to, it's great to see you. I've come about the soul of Jonah, my husband. And Peter kind of looked her up and down and went, Your Jonah? I have a charge seat against your Jonah that is, well, it's longer than my wing. Ellen, Eden is not really for the likes of your Jonah. And she said, well, Peter, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, I'll admit that he wasn't always one for for pious living, but there was never a morning where he renounced Christ three times before the cock had crowed. Now, at that, Peter turned a shade of pink, embarrassed, and he was lucky that Ellen didn't go any further. He just opened the, the gate, stepped inside himself, and slammed it behind him, leaving Ellen on her own, outside, with the sack, which seemed to be getting heavier and heavier. And after a while, she took a deep breath and she knocked on the gate. And she knocked again. And eventually they were answered. And it was a different man now. And she could tell by the, the pen ink that was spilling out of his pockets and the feathers around his ears and all of the scrolls on him that this was St. Paul. And she said, oh, Paul, um, I, I got off on the wrong foot with Peter just now, but I'm really glad to see you. I've come about the soul of uh, Jonah. And Paul scratched his head and said, I... Jonah? It's a fishy sort of name. Um, it's not ringing any bells. No, you, Jonah was my, my husband, Jonah Jones. Jo oh, that Jonah? Oh, look, a long time have I been planning to write him one of my epistles. I, your Jonah, High Eden is not for the likes of your Jonah. And at this, Ellen could feel her lips going very thin. And she said, well, I'm surprised that you struggle with names so much, Paul, given that you yourself have gone by Saul in your time. And as bad as my Jonah was, I never heard of him crucifying Christians from one town to the next. 
And Paul had gone bright red with shame at this point, and he slammed the pearly gates, and she could hear, even on the soft cloud or earth, whatever you want to imagine was inside, the scrunching of his footfall. And she thought, I've, I've got to... Got to control me short temper, haven't I? So she took a few deep breaths. She felt the bag sag on her shoulder. She hitched it higher, up on her spine, and she knocked. And she knocked again. And she knocked again. And eventually, the gates opened. She could tell by the crown of thorns, by the holes in the palms of the person that was waiting on the other side, that this was, you know, the man himself, the son. And she said, oh, um, Jesus, it's good to see you. Uh, I've come about the soul of Jonah, my late husband. And he said, Alan, I know why you've come. I know the promise that you've made to your husband. But it's Peter and Paul that manage the books and the accounts. Did you speak to them? And she said, Yes, I did speak to them, and they said that Jonah wasn't really the right sort of person to merit entry into High Eden. But but I say this, surely no one enters this place by their own deeds, but by your grace and mercy, sir. So if you wouldn't mind, and he said, Ellen, I'm so sorry, but it is not in my hands. And he turned. And very slowly the gate closed. And as it was closing, there was a moment where Ellen's heart seemed to break. But there'd been something in the, the softness of his eyes and his voice when he said that. That her mind was still spinning. And it went from that phrase, it's not in my hands, to what was in her hands, which was the mouth of the bag that she had slung over her back. And realising that it was in her hands, that it had always been in her hands, she lifted the bag off her shoulders. She span like someone doing the hammer throw. And just before the gates had shut, she flung the bag in. And it seemed that for a moment as that bag opened, there was a great peeling of all the heavens inside. And the gates shut and all was silent. And feeling lighter than she'd been since she was a girl at the dances, Ellen went sauntering home over the bridge into her little cottage and she lived there for a good few many years on her own until at last it was her time to take that tramping road and i suspect because of what mr blazes had said when the terrier had a hold of his gloved hand the dog went with her at her heel as they made their last long passage up the hill to the blue roofed mansions of high eden In my own city of Sheffield, as in many places across the UK, you can find traditional storytelling being nourished by local hosts and organisers, through regular story circles and club nights. It was through Tim's club, The Story Forge, meeting every month in an upstairs room at the Fat Cat in Kellam Island, that I received my first exposure to storytelling and told my first story to a live audience. For this episode of Lauren Legend, I brought Tim into the studio to explain how he himself came to the world of storytelling. 
I guess I was very lucky in a lot of ways because as a child, my parents took me to folk festivals. You know, they were into the music and the dancing. And so even as a, as a young person, I was listening to storytelling. It's always been, or certainly you know, from the 1980s onwards with the storytelling revival. I'll put that in uh, little little quote marks for the listeners. Uh, with the storytelling revival, there was a sort of strand of storytelling going on at folk festivals. So I grew up listening to people like Hugh Lupton and Dovey Thomason and Dan Kedding, which meant the storytelling was on my radar. So many of the people that I tell to nowadays, grown-ups, for a lot of them, they, 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 it's the first time they've encountered storytelling. Maybe their parents read to them or their teachers read to them when they were younger. But like the kind of storytelling that, that we do, that this podcast is exploring, um, they haven't come across that. So like I said, I was very lucky that as a child, in my kind of mental radar of career paths that were open to a human being, you know, astronaut, teacher, fire person, storyteller was one of those vocational archetypes that uh, that there were people whose profession it was to just know hundreds of stories and to rock up at a place and maybe play a bit of music and then have tale after tale after tale until the, the session ended. Um, so that was kind of my first exposure to, to the craft. If you're a listener of this podcast, you obviously enjoy folk tales, fairy tales, myths and legends. But you may not be aware that there's a thriving storytelling scene in the UK, which, as Tim mentions, grew out of a revival moment in the 1960s. I asked Tim to explain a bit more about the places that you can find this kind of storytelling. For listeners who, like you say, maybe haven't really encountered storytelling as a modern art form, uh, what kind of stuff is out there? You know, where can they hear people uh, doing what you do? Yeah, great question. So let's be clear that the kind of storytelling that, that I'm talking about uh, is mostly drawing on traditional material. So folk tales, fairy tales, myths, legends, kind of uh, things that we might call traditional, though but that's a, that's a word with connotations. Um, and there certainly are people who are tradition bearers, you know, people like yeah, Sean Lee Cumbers, who's got an enormous repertoire of Jewish stories. It's a family repertoire that's been passed down. Um, and those people who perhaps feel a kind of a sense of coming from and belonging to a particular kind, a particular set of of tales. Um, and those people more like yourself, myself, yourself, who... You know, perhaps by virtue of being um, white middle class British, uh, are somewhat orphaned to a tradition that is particular to, you know, a family or a, or a place. Um, and so the, the a lot of the storytellers that I saw during the, the revival growing up were people who, you know, had collected stories from around the world. There was this kind of um, creation of a new tradition, I suppose. That's why they called it a revival. So they were inspired by people like Duncan Williamson, Scott's Traveller Story, who carried lots of Scott's Traveller tales and other tales, some of which he'd reskinned as Scott's Traveller um, along the way. And um, they were inspired by these kind of living, authentic, let's put that word, even bigger quote marks, traditions um, to create something new. So where can people encounter storytelling today? Of that kind, that kind of storytelling, there are storytelling clubs uh, here in Sheffield, there's the, the Story Forge that meets in um, in the Fat Cat and Calm Island every month. You know, in, in Beeston, in Nottingham, I run Beeston Tales, which is another monthly storytelling night. Um, there are 
performances going on as part of rural touring schemes. Atlas Canva does a lot of work through those. There's festivals of um, of storytelling, Festival at the Edge, uh, Beyond the Border. And then it'll crop up in other places, libraries, schools, uh, residential homes. So it's there, I think. So I, it's not quite mainstream. I, mean, I, I feel like I should say it's not mainstream yet. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, and hopefully places like this that will put stories out online will be, will be a large part of bringing it to a wider audience, an audience that haven't encountered this kind of storytelling before. My own introduction to storytelling came, as I've said, through attending the Story Forge, Tim's own storytelling club in Sheffield. I was studying here as a student, and as such, it was a late discovery for me, and something of a surprise revelation. I asked him, having grown up around storytelling and storytellers, about his own journey with storytelling, and how and when he decided to become a professional storyteller. Yeah, well, if I carry on from that, those stories of, of listening at folk festivals, you know, I, I retold those stories in the car journeys home to my to my parents, you know, and leaning forward from the back seat in between the two front seats, probably getting in the way of someone trying to change gear, and just reciting back all of the stories that I'd heard with a kind of spirit of childish enthusiasm, <laughs> as, I, uh, as I hope you can imagine, um, and maybe I haven't lost that yet. Um and then I started my first storytelling club in my school library as a teenager, which, again, was a lot of, of me telling stories. I was always trying to get other people involved, but, uh, you know, 20 or 30 people would turn up and we'd have some stories at lunchtime. And um, So that, I suppose, is kind of like the, the early seeds of me, Tim, the storyteller. I got involved in a lot of other things when I went to university, drifted away from storytelling for a bit. And then as I kind of found myself drifting back into the folk world, you know, storytelling was my way of contributing in in that kind of space. So if we were in kind of Cayley format folk clubs where everyone was doing something and it felt appropriate, I'd, I'd, drop, a, I'd drop a story. And that is what led me back into it. That for Fool's Festival was one of the first festivals that I got booked to do a slot. I did some stuff at the hiring fair at Whitby in, I guess it was 2006, and Graham Langley, who I know we both know quite well, Graham Langley has done great things for storytelling in the Midlands. Um, he heard me at one of those and said, oh, you, you should come to the Young Storyteller of the Year competition. 2007, I was at the Young Storyteller of the Year competition. I was just just young enough to count as young then. Um, and from that, uh, from that, that was kind of sort of a jumping point for me into the rest of the storytelling world um reconnecting with it going to festival at the edge and beyond the border that summer and you know finding the network of clubs and it was very gradual for me it was only in sort of 2013 that i even really you know it, like that was when i gave up the day job it was five years of slowly building up storytelling and um doing more and more whilst doing less and less of the, the office day job. Well, if Tim has lived with stories from such a young age, I asked if he remembered the first story that he told or the first story he told as a performer. I don't even know at what point I'd be able to say, and that was the first time I told a story. Like, I know that the story that I told that young storyteller over the year in 2007, that story was um, kind of Death and the Red Marie. It was a uh, um, sometimes it's called Death and Maud Applegate, the 
<clears throat> the story of you know a, a young woman who wants to save her beloved so she kind of summons up death and uh, they, they get into a bit of a, a game of questions and answers um, so that in some ways is is a first story if you choose that that's going to be where you where you start the tale but yeah I don't I don't remember the stories that I remember some of them but yeah, some of the stories that I was telling as a small child coming back from the festivals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where do you begin? The first kind of show-lengthy piece I put on was a version of Gwen and the Green Knight uh, in Sheffield. That was kind of my first, you know, <clears throat> feature-length piece. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, with, with Ashley Tuck on the uh, on the drums. One of the most wonderful things about the storytelling scene is the way in which every storyteller brings a different voice a different style, a unique approach to their material. Even though the material is traditional and in some cases already very familiar, in the hands of a competent storyteller, you never have to worry that you'll be bored hearing the same tales more than once. I asked him what kind of storyteller he considers himself to be. What an interesting question. And I think yeah, I think that's a very, it's a very interesting question. What kind of storyteller are you? I don't quite like because what, what are the kinds of storyteller? What kind of stories do you like to tell? Because there may be storytellers who are more jocular. There may be storytellers who are more uh, about the epics. Do you have a sense of what is your favourite kind of material, and does that define? Yeah, that's you? a really good question. I think. So something happened to me in 2007, which is that I was at Beyond the Border and um, I saw Michael Harvey do his Branwyn's Tale, which is the um, second branch of the Mabinogian. Almost got almost got exorcised by all of the exorcised, well, exiled by all of the all of the great Welsh storytellers for forgetting my branches. Yes, yeah, second branch of the Mabinogian. Um and it was the first time that I'd seen someone do long-form storytelling. So whilst I'd listened to quite a lot of storytelling up until that point, it had always been, here's a 10-minute story, here's a 15-minute story, here's a little snip of a poem, here's a here's another 10-minute story, here's a song, here's a story, boom, that was my hour, done. Uh, so, which is great, don't get me wrong, I, I love that stuff. But when I saw Michael do, you know, one tale, like one journey that he was going to take the listeners on for however long, like with that crafting of what is my beginning, what is my middle, what is my end. Uh, I was really excited to see that. And I think still today there's something that I really enjoy in the compositional process of going, okay, if I want to, what is the, the whole journey of this piece? I also asked him if there were other storytellers whose performances had inspired him. What stood out to him as particularly fine examples of the storyteller's art? So there's certainly, and there's people who come from particular traditions. One of my favourite shows of the last decade was probably Dovey Thomason doing uh, How the West Was Spun, which was her exploring the Wild West show, Wild Bill Hickok's Wild West show, and how he toured it around and brought it to the UK. And it was amazing, like, because the people that were doing this performance of the kind of United States and Native American conflicts, a lot of the time were people that had fought in them and now, you know, and now were shell-shocked, have post-traumatic stress disorder or um, 
warrior's fatigue, I think was what the, the Native Americans called it, or brave sickness. And yet they found this kind of camaraderie with each other, like where they were reenacting the stories of their fighting every night and traveling together, but were at least with people who kind of had shared something, had been through an experience. And it's brilliant. And she talks about kind of like what it means, like the kind of national myth of the US and what it means for her to be someone who is a Native American teller and to some extent gets books because she, she is from the Native American tradition. Now, you may have heard the word storytelling kicked around a lot recently. In fact, a lot over the last few years. It's become a buzzword across a whole heap of fields. Education, psychology, the arts and culture sector, and even in business and brand management. For devotees of traditional storytelling, this is something of a mixed blessing. We've gone from a time when announcing you were a storyteller could generate intrigue, confusion, or just incomprehension, to one in which you find writers, stage actors, journalists, and those dreaded brand managers rushing to call themselves storytellers. I suggested to Tim that this sometimes creates difficulties for those of us who understand storytelling as a particular art with its own distinctive form, its own culture and history. Sure, and the, the kind of what we do with the brand is a big is a big question. Uh, only this morning on my Facebook feed there was an advert for a, a Neil Gaiman masterclass of how to be a storyteller. Um, and you know, it's not like he doesn't have a right to that word. Uh, and you and you're also right that like this, this storytelling is a buzzword. Um, is uh, has definitely become really kind of like oh yes storytelling it's it's great I don't quite know why and I can't quite articulate why storytelling is so brilliant but it's going to get you more customers more clients it's going to help you more effectively communicate your messages and it's uh, fundamental to the human condition and therefore it's it's in everything um, I have dear friends who were really active in seventies eighties nineties in raising the profile of storytelling. And in order to do that, in order to get arts organisations to understand what it was that we do, they had to get quite um, quite clear for themselves what the kind of storytelling they did was. Um, and, they, and they had to get very passionate about that. And as a result of having kind of almost been in the trenches of representing their art form, people can be a bit, a bit battle-scarred in some ways. So I don't want to... I'm going to I realise I'm benefiting from their successes in a lot of ways. Um, but I don't want to be in a position where where I find myself going, oh, but that's not really storytelling. That's, <laughs> that's personal anecdote or that's more kind of solo theatre or... Um, yeah, I don't want to draw too strong a boundary around what we do. Um, though at the same time, the kind of dilution of, well, everything's storytelling, hooray, isn't... <laughs> isn't necessarily great either. Now, knowing that Tim's a passionate advocate for storytelling as an art form, I asked him what kind of skills he considers important for a storyteller and what aspects of his own performance is he currently looking to build on and to develop. Each piece that I'm working on, I'm trying to find new directions to push myself, new kind of uh, boundaries to extend, new skills to develop. 
I think one of the things I've I've really noticed lately is clarity. Like there are some people when you listen, it's, it's effortless as a listener to know what is going on in the story when they're speaking. Um, it's almost like Japanese brushstroke, really simple brushstroke art. It's like what is the minimum amount of work that I can do to depict bamboo or a wave, right? Like what what is what is it that I need to do to be very very precise, very exact in in what I'm communicating. Physicality is always a big one for me as well, and that's one of the reasons why I got into martial arts, is to just kind of like work out what my relationship is with my body as a tool for expression and, and where that can go. But then I think in part, like the skills I need to develop will be driven by the material that I'm working with. And that may mean for me looking at, okay, going back to working with musicians um, or increasingly interested by the idea of like what is what do we mean to have projected imagery going on while there was storytelling happening to step in and out of spaces of referring to um to that kind of thing so these are these are sort of all potential projects that sit on the back burner of my mind until until the right opportunity comes along and i'm like right now skeletor and other baddies that show that i've been thinking about for ages is gonna finally get its moment to, to live um yeah yeah, yeah. Finally, I asked Tim to tell us about his most memorable storytelling gig or experience. I was dreading that question. Okay, I'll get. So I've, I've done a, a lot of different things and a lot of things that have been very special. Um, but if I had to pick one moment, I think that it's almost worth talking about. I was in Delhi in India. Uh, I was taken over there by the British Council. They're having a storytelling festival, big amphitheatre. And during the days, you know, hundreds of school children we bust in. And they'd listen to stories told in English, and then maybe they get some Rajasthani puppeteers doing amazing puppetry and different forms of um, of kind of story going on. And then in the evening, floodlights had come on, and just the general public would come into this space. And you know, we might have 500 or so people in this amphitheater in the park, and um, and we tell stories. And I was there. I can't remember what I'd been planning on telling, but. Giles Abbott, um, who I, some of your listeners may be aware of Giles Abbott, storyteller, got up before me and he told the story of um, Gawain and Dame Ragnall. You know, the, the what is it that women want story. And I thought, oh, great, because one of the stories that I like to tell is that Gawain and the Green Knight story. And I wasn't going to tell it in India because I thought by the time I've explained who King Arthur is, who all these characters are, what the world... By the time I've created the world like will be lost but he'd already done all the setup work for me so he's like oh, I can do I can do a quick I can do a quick grain in the green night it'll be great um, and it was great and there's a scene in Gwen in the green night where Gwen has made a deal with the lord of the castle that he's staying in that at the end of their day he's been many, meant to be spending his days in prayer and the lord has been spending his days hunting and they've got this bargain that they're going to swap whatever it is that they've kind of won by their different pursuits during the course of the day. So the Lord comes in and he's like, well, today I hunted, you know, in the original text, it's like um, <clears throat> a load of deer, like here's a load of, of, of deer meat and venison skins and things. And um, Gawain, unbeknownst to the Lord, uh, has had a, a kiss with the Lord's wife. So there's a moment where he thinks, oh, and now I have to give the Lord what I've got today. And he steps forward and plants a kiss on the Lord's lips. 
Now, I told it in Delhi, and I, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten that that was one of the scenes that crops up in the story when I launched on this um, on this particular legend. You know, I was I was thinking more about all the beheading and the, the knights and whatever. Um, and in India in general, like this idea of there being any kind of erotic energy between two men is a big social taboo. Like it, or it's it's a charged topic, and actually the day I didn't even realize this afterwards. The day that I was there telling that story, open night, floodlights on, hundreds of people there in Delhi, was the day that the Indian Supreme Court was debating the regional law on whether to abolish the old when they were a British um, a British whatever protectorate, who knows. Um, this law that effectively made homosexuality illegal. So, like, there was this big energy in the air around this topic of uh, homosexual attraction. And I start on this scene, and we're building up to this moment, and I can feel this kind of collective in-breath as everyone gets gets what's going to happen next. These two men are going to kiss each other. And rather than it being a, like, well, is this a jocular moment, or is this meant to be a tender moment... Like, almost it was just a sense of, like, it happened, it actually happened, and the world didn't end. Like, the story carried on afterwards. And there was something magical that shifted in that moment that I can't quite, you know, define, would be beyond me to redefine. And I, you know, and, and I speculate as to what it actually meant to the people that were there that night, if it meant anything in particular at all but yeah as i look back that's certainly one of the moments that that stands out quite accidentally as being a case of like oh actually you know what there are stories that have that have a place that have a power um when the time is right for them even if that's by accident You've been listening to The Soul of Jonah Jones, a bonus episode of Lore and Legend with our featured guest storyteller, Tim Ralphs, and your host, Rick Scott. Our very special thanks to Tim for his story and for joining us in the studio. Between each series of our own tales here at Lore and Legend, we'll be giving you a taste of the wider world of traditional storytelling by inviting practising storytellers to talk to us and to share a story. Coming up next from Lore and Legend will be our Halloween specials released on the 30th and 31st of October. Join us then for the grim tales of Black Jack of the Lantern and the evil Lord Sulis, a Scottish border tale with strong echoes of Macbeth. The music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentle, with additional music and sound effects from freesound.org. To find out more about episodes of Law and Legend, you can visit www.lawandlegend.co.uk and check out our episode blog posts, as well as seeing all of the upcoming episodes for the rest of the year. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing, you can find the link there to support us regularly on Patreon or offer a one-time donation via PayPal. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.